The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. Before we get started with tonight's episode of Benched with Bubba, I want to talk to you about rotoballer.com, proud sponsor of the show. Do my written content over at rotoballer.com, and this podcast is a part of the Rotoballer Radio Network. So I want to let you know that uh, football season quickly approaching with you guys. Win big in 2021 with rotoballer.com's NFL Premium Pass. Are you ready to dominate your season long in DFS leagues? Rotoballer's NFL Premium Pass and Draft Kit include rankings, projections, and cheat sheets for all formats. Get exclusive draft articles, DFS tools, lineup optimizers, and premium Slack chats. Join in on the winning and take 50% off any premium pass. Use promo code Bubba, B-U-B-B-A, for another 10% discount. Just visit rotoballer.com backslash radio, sign up today, and start rotoballing like a boss. Welcome back, everybody, to another episode of Benched with Bubba, episode 411. Special guest joining me tonight, first-time person guest being benched with Benched with Bubba. You can find his work over at spstreamer.com. He's on Twitter at AwesomeVictorAA. Victor Akintola, how are we doing, my friend? I'm doing well. It's been a very interesting uh, World Series so far, Game 2 going on right now. Mm-hmm. Uh, last I saw, the Astros were winning 6-2, to two, but yeah, I'm doing well. Good, good. Yeah, no, it's. Uh, I got home kind of late and was doing things with the little one. I kind of looked at my phone. I saw it was five to one already. I'm like, well, that escalated quickly. Mm-hmm. Um, it's just, it's been wild, like you said. Game one, you know, Charlie Morton fractured his fibula. That's a big bummer. But uh, Braves got that win on paper. The Astros should get this win, so we should have one one going into Atlanta. Um, I know it's a question we have later from good old buddy Carlos Marcano, but I'll ask you now. Who who do you got? Who do you got in the World Series? Uh, I think I'm still picking the Astros to win in seven, even though game one didn't really go their way. I think the Astros are just like, they're just a better team than the Braves. No offense to the Braves. They've had a tremendous season and it's 
amazing what they've been able to do without Ronald Acuna. But I think they're just a little short when it comes to um, the lineup compared to the Astros. And now with Morton unable to go for the rest of the series, I think that really tips tips it in the favor of Houston. 100% agree. Like I was telling someone on a different show in the divisional series round, the way the Astros all of a sudden started hitting, like we've been waiting for it. And it's just a juggernaut that t- one through nine, well, maybe one through eight. Maldonado is kind of questionable <laughs> at times, so like one through eight. But it's just a fearsome lineup. Like when you have Kyle Tucker hitting sixth and stuff, Yuli Gurriel, it's scary. I don't care how good you are. It's tough. Um, And then the Braves come sneaking in, and I'm like, you know, with Morton and Freed, you can kind of piece it together in a playoffs like that. But then, like you said, losing Morton, that was just like a big, "Mm, that's tough. That's going to be tricky. So I'm with you. If we get seven regardless, I'd be pumped. That'd be great. That means we got to – we should have got a pretty good series, which is mm-hmm. as baseball fans, since we're going to have a potentially long break ahead, that'd be great to see. Right. So that'd be pretty cool. For sure. Um, you mentioned no Ronald Acuna. And I saw this news literally it's been, I guess, out today. He was interviewed or talked about. Um, it was always kind of speculated. He had his injury. Some guys come back early. Like maybe we could have got a February or a March, but in reality, he already said he's hoping for May sometime in May with that knowledge. And we have a long ways till draft season. But where would you estimate being willing to take him in a draft knowing you're not getting him to like May? Uh, off, just like from a gut reaction, I feel like it would be very difficult to take him top five knowing you're going to get one month less than, than the other picks. Like, obviously, Tatis has his own questions, but he's at least as of right now, supposed to come into the season healthy, I suppose, healthy in quotes. Mm -hmm. And then um, Otani and his dominance. Um, Trout, when he coming back from his injury, I think he's probably going to be in that. I've seen a lot of people talk about Trout not being a top five pick anymore. Mm -hmm. I think if you... If you factor in Acuna's injury, he might sneak back into that range. Obviously, Trey Turner uh, and the steals that he provides. Uh, yeah, I think generally, like I don't think I would be able to take Acuna top five if I if we knew like he's definitely going to miss a month. I think you might be able to make an argument to get him out of the first round, depending on <clears throat> excuse me, depending on where you place the pitchers, because um, you could definitely make an argument. Uh, in favor of Garrett Cole versus Acuna in that instance, maybe even a Corbin Burns, uh, depending on how far down your pitcher, your list of pitchers goes. But I think um, that range 10 to 14 ish might be where I would start to think about Acuna. Yeah, I agree. I, that's the thing I've seen some people in different chat rooms I'm in. Some are saying there's no way I'll take him till round three. And then some people are like, oh, I'll take him in round one. Like it's all over the board, and I get the arguments for everyone like i get it if you don't want to sit there and wait for one it's the idea of okay if he comes back in may and if he's 100 percent, like he's still he's running he's doing it all you know you might take that discount you might take the discount so we have a long ways to go but i just wanted to get your your thoughts on it because i was under the impression you know we saw kyle schwarber a few years ago obviously not the athletic person that acuna is mm-hmm. but we saw schwarber a few years ago you know get hurt and come back six months later and play in the world series for the cubs and then he started the next year ready to rock and roll. So I was thinking, okay, maybe Acuna, you know, I saw him doing drills recently, but it's kind of, this was interesting news to me to say the least. Maybe there's, Hey, maybe it's because he's so young. They're like, you know what? 
we're going to make sure he's 100%. Why risk it? We got this kid for a long time. Why risk this? And that's smart, too. So we'll wait and see. But, uh, yeah, would have been cool if he was in the World Series. Would have been a lot of fun. <laughs> would have been a lot of fun. But yeah. I think he'll have a few more years to go with that. <laughs> um, for sure. All right. Let's talk about uh, some of your work over here at SP Streamer. It's a great website. Uh, if you guys are regular listeners to the show, we've had Michael on. We've had Art on. We've had Josh. We've had almost everybody on. It seems like I know there's – he keeps adding more and more people, which is outstanding. <laughs> the site keeps growing. It's hard for me to keep up sometimes, but I love it. So this past year – this was your first year with, with Michael, correct? Yes. This is my first year writing about fantasy baseball at all. And, forgive me, you are also starting a new venture – in fantasy baseball. Why don't you let the listeners know about that before we even dig in to your writing content? Yes. So uh, Josh St. Marie, another writer at SP Streamer, and I have uh, started a podcast. It's called the St. Victory Podcast, combining our two names. That's good. Um, <laughs> it's in the. It's very nascent in the nascent stages right now. We're still trying to figure out a routine, a schedule. We're still not even 100% sure what type of content we want to do. Um, but if you could give the first couple episodes a listen, it would be great if, you know, if you could check out our podcast, you know, maybe um, hopefully as we get more experience with it, it could be, you know, something that we do end up doing regularly. But yes, that's something that Josh and I are pursuing at the moment. All right. I will do my best to remember to put a link to that in this podcast. If I forget, DM me and I'll make sure it's in there so people can find it pretty easy and make that happen. But yeah, Josh is good people. He's been on the show. You're on the show. So we will represent that. And um, I, I like how you were very open right there and said, we're trying to still figure it out because that is, if people go back and listen to my early episodes, um, it was sometimes just talking baseball. They had football, we had UFC, we had movies. Like the point of bench with Bubba is to talk about whatever I want. Cause you're on bench with Bubba. It's mainly all fantasy baseball. Now it's kind of found that, that lane, but it took a while to figure out exactly where I wanted to go with things. So nothing wrong with that at all. Like literally piece it together. Some guys like to do segments. Some guys like to do bits. Some guys like to do all kinds of things. Do what works for you guys. Content's all that matters. People will come if it's good. It's all that matters. So um, looking forward. I'll give that, I'll give that a listen, put that in my, uh, my portfolio of podcasts. That's all I do all day is listen to podcasts while I work. So I will throw that in the, the rotation and check it out. Um, all right, so you write for spstreamer.com, and as we know, for the streaming site, they stream articles for streaming everything. Like, catchers were getting streamed. Like, it made me laugh that, that we're doing, but it made sense. Um, steals make sense, and relievers makes a ton of sense. So you were called upon to write a weekly column on what relievers to stream for the week. Starting off with that, what goes into, like, what do you look for? Is it just a schedule thing? Is it guys that are hot and cold? What is it that you're looking for to decide who is a streamer eligible, streamer quality reliever that week? So obviously these articles come out weekly. So it's important to make sure that um, the immediate impact of the pitchers that I'm trying to recommend is there. So scheduling is very important, whether you're going into a week where they have you know favorable matchups, where I would expect their team to collect opportunities for saves and holds whether they're playing seven games versus five games those things definitely do matter but i think uh i took more of a perspective on trying to look um look through who could be more than one week values i would always have in my three in my three recommendations while two of them were 
more so just for the next week. I would always try to throw in someone who, you know, maybe you could speculate on them. Maybe they could have more season-long value than the other two. So for that, I was very interested in seeing pitchers who had good velocity, uh, pitchers who were being used in um, certain high-leverage situations. If a pitcher, uh, at least I've seen some some uh, research saying that pitchers who get used in the eighth inning tend to become closers once the closer that's already in there is no longer the closer. So that's something I would look for, what innings managers are going to certain relievers and obviously strikeouts. They highly correlate with pitchers who end up becoming closers. So I think those three things, along with the scheduling and the more short-term aspects, were the things that I tried to focus the most on when recommending pitchers and uh, the articles in general. Awesome. Yeah, no, that was a big thing this past year. Like You had an important job because the closing carousel was quite the um... – the rocky one, to say the least. A lot of people hopping on and off of the closing carousels. You know, we had Mike Carter writes with you guys. He does closing work elsewhere, and some other guys, the uh, Ryan Roof, and many others have been on the show. And um, it's a wild, wild world out there in the in the closing situation. So, I think this idea of speculating and kind of being ahead of the game is a very important tool that we're going to start utilizing more and more. So, I think what you're doing is kind of maybe it was like a year ahead or it was the perfect year to do it per se. And as that keeps going, this could be like a big thing for it. Um, so you were speculating, like you said, primarily on guys that could become closers um, and then guys down the line that could become closers. Were you like, did you find yourself going more like what did national league, American league, or just kind of like a weekly thing? Because, you know, certain situations were just all over the board. I know, but were you looking more like in, in certain teams that stood out more to you or was there anything that, like any trends per se? Uh, there were certainly certain teams that were more active, I think would be the word in terms of mixing around who got the saves. Uh, the Royals are probably the first team that comes to my mind, uh, the way Scott Barlow, Josh Damon, Greg Holland, all those relievers <clears throat> all seemingly switched through roles as the season progressed. Uh, the Reds were sort of like that. The Orioles were also sort of like that. So there's definitely like specific teams who were hotbeds, I think. Um, for me, looking for potential uh, pitchers for saves, but and even holds, uh, because obviously, even if uh, a pitcher that I'm focusing on doesn't end up being the closer, they can still provide value in a holds league or you know pro- provide value for ratios. So I think <clears throat> those relievers who are part of who are part of committees did end up still being you know an important part of my analysis, and there were definitely. <laughs> Definitely specific teams that were much more of a headache to try and figure out who's who has what role. And um, obviously the Rays thrown in there too. Although towards the end of the season, Andrew Kittridge did end up looking more or less like the, the go-to pitcher with all the injuries we had. But they were also on the list. And the Rays, they're so annoying to me. Like they're a great baseball team. They're great. And they do this every year. So it's like I shouldn't even be annoyed anymore. She was like, yep, this is the Rays. But what you just said there with Kittridge kind of taking over – it's like last year Fairbanks did the same thing. So going into the season, it's like, okay, well, let's go Peter Fairbanks time. Yeah, that didn't happen. Like that, they went right back to doing the rotation thing right out the gate. And I'm curious to see what they'll do with Kittredge going into 2022. It'll they'll probably raise it up as usual and see where it goes. But uh, it does make it it makes it very entertaining in the world where we need saves. But like you said, holds is an important thing coming around these days, and just the ratios and the strikeouts. Some of these guys in the eighth inning or using higher leverage situations had tremendous value to your fantasy team, even though they weren't getting you the saves, they might sneak into a win here or there. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then the other categories, like you mentioned, were pretty, pretty important. 
So let's talk about um, some of these end-of-season guys. Like you mentioned, there's a Kittredge in there, but there's many other teams in the carousels we saw that they kind of had a guy towards the end kind of, you know, arise from the ashes like a phoenix or something and he's he's gonna be he was the closer for at least most of september if not all of september kind of giving us maybe a glimpse into 2022 maybe it's just fool's gold we'll see that's gonna want to talk to you about here because your latest article at sb streamer highlighted some of these guys and it's names i know that we've talked about in fab towards the end of the season and many other aspects and there's like mixed reviews on some of these guys so i just want to get your thoughts on them i know you wrote about them articles been out for a little while so people can go check it out over at spstreamer.com but joe barlow was a very, very fun name. He's the, I'm just going through your article, and he's a guy that I could never get a firm grasp on. And I know in the end game, he got the job done. There's no hiding that at all. He's, he picked up 11 saves on the season, um, a 155 ERA. You know, if you look at the X stats, maybe he got a little lucky. Who knows? But he got the job done, and that's all that matters in the end game. So going into 2022, what's your thoughts on Joe Barlow with the Rangers? Uh, obviously, in the article, I expressed some doubts about the skills of Joe Barlow, but uh, contrary to that assessment, I think he's one of the more firm closers, I think, going into the 2022 season because of how well he did end up, uh, at least his results were in the 2021 season. He had a tremendous ERA, as you stated earlier, and I think the Rangers are in a spot right now as a franchise where they're not going to be spending big money for established relievers. They could bring in obviously like minor league players or minor league contracts and other veteran players to challenge Barlow. But I think the way he ended the season, how firmly Woodward used him as a closer in September, he was essentially only used when they had a lead. That's also another important thing for uh, trying to figure out who a manager really trusts to, uh, to close games. I just think with everything that goes into what will decide who the Texas Rangers closer, at least to begin 2022 will be, I think Barlow is pretty firmly cemented in that. So I think uh, if I were drafting now with the limited information we do have, I think he probably would end up still being like a top 15 closer for me, even though I not 100% sure where um, his season will end given some of the strikeout, the walk issues, uh, things of that nature. But I do think Barlow is a good bet to at least start the season picking up saves. And the the Rangers have been a team. That's why it's a good. It's, it's good that you mentioned that. At least in the past, and Woodward, and pr- prior to Woodward, even if the guy wasn't like the most dominating closer, we they still kind of went with him to say the least, and they rolled with him until they kind of you know lost lost all that control type deal, but they at least got the chance to, to make it work. So I think that's definitely something to keep an eye on, as you said, and, and something to look for going forward. Um, let's go to Colorado where things get dicey because we know we don't like pitchers in Colorado most of the time anyways. And the thing is, though, when you need saves, you need saves. And you try to make it work the best you can. Like Daniel Bard was rostered a lot in 2020. He's rostered a lot in 2021 until he couldn't be rostered anymore. And Carlos Estevez took over. Picked up 11 saves, but the ratios were a little a little rough. So what's your thoughts on Estevez going forward? Is this a, someone we're going to uh, continue on with, or is it more just like, you know what, maybe not? Uh, I think in the case of Estevez, I would not anticipate him being uh, a firm closer to start the season. The way he ended 
the season in September was not very good compared to how he had pitched in the middle of the season. Uh, and September also coincided with him taking over the closers role. So he didn't put forth a very good audition, you could say, for being the closer for the 2022 season. And the Rockies have been um, – their closer situation, at least between 2020 and 2021, they have been fairly loyal to pitchers who who struggle pretty badly. Daniel Bard had, had to have a 5 ERA before he was taken out of the role. Even, um, I believe, Jairo Diaz in 2020, he – he had some struggles before they took him out of the role. So Estevez, uh, his struggles might not play that big of a role into whether he's a the Rockies closer or not. But I also think the way the Rockies organization runs, I think they'll be looking for, for veteran relievers to fill out their bullpen, given how thin it was. Uh, they already DFA'd Yancy Almonte. They have a lot of uh, holes that they need to fill in that bullpen. And they might try and fill them with younger arms like Julian Fernandez. But I think, um, and this is just like me guessing but, um, what the Rockies will do in the offseason. I think they'll bring in arms. I think they'll have more of a competition than the Rangers would. And I would definitely not be excited to be taking Estevez. I think he would be more of someone that uh, if you try to punt reliever in the draft, maybe he's a guy you pick up at the end of the draft and hope he at least starts the season as the closer but he's not someone that I'd be targeting at all. Good. Yeah, no, I like that because it's tough. Like I said, it's tough to stomach any pitcher in colors, but uh, sometimes you just need closers because, yeah, you missed them or you punted. Uh, I've been, Toby and I have been re- recapping the draft we did with Michael and others in, in first pitch Arizona, and closers went so fast, um, I had issues getting closers. Let's put it that way. <laughs> it, it got ugly towards the end, and um, Estevez is still on the board. We only did the first 23 rounds, but he will be going soon, I have a feeling. So, um, it's just the way things go in those do, drafts and those are the breaks. Do you know where Barlow went in that draft? Um, I'd have to went? go back and check. Um, I want to say he was like around around 18 or 19, maybe. Mm-hmm. Um, I know both. I'm pretty sure both Barlows went in that draft because, like I said, relief pitchers, closers, speculative closers were flying early and often. So after, after the season that we had in um, – in uh, 2021, like I'll just ask you, like I've, I've asked every other I think person on the show, how are you approaching saves for 2022? Uh, I think I haven't really been the person to pay up big for saves in the past, but I I do think the the high end guys, at least the way I view them, they're pretty bankable, and that might be a dangerous trap to fall in because relievers are so volatile. You probably would have said Aroldis Chapman, for example, was really bankable heading into 2020, 2021, I should say. <clears throat> then he ended up having a fairly pedestrian season. But Josh Hader and Liam Hendricks at the top, um, I just I think it might be worth paying up for them to a certain extent. And I think Giovanni Gallegos, who was another guy in the article, I think he might have the skills and now the role to break into that elite top five category. So I do think some of those guys at the top, I could envision paying up for, but when you get to the middle, the middle area, there's so much turnover between relievers who aren't quite elite that I, I think you have to either go all in or all out. Essentially. I wouldn't want to be stuck in the middle with, with uh, some of the closers in like the 10 to 15 range. Yeah, it's tricky. It's very tricky, and, I, and that's kind of how I, I've gone into it in recent years is I want, like, one of the big 
like six to eight. Like there's there's like a list you can kind of make kind of guys you can kind of trust like bankable, like you said, you know, Jose Iglesias, uh, even Kenley Jansen is not pretty. We look at his final line and he just gets the job done. It, it's a roller, like the middle of the season. He didn't think he was. Then his last like month and a half was just filthy again. And his, his final line was there. You, you know, you play on a team that wins 106 games. He's going to get a lot of save chances. It's just the way it works. Mm-hmm. Um, so like guys like that, there's, there's a handful of them. I'd always try to get like one of them at least to kind of, have that that base to go off of. But you mentioned Giovanni Gallegos, and that is a very good one because people were screaming all year, put him back there, Alex Reyes, Alex Reyes, and finally Alex Reyes got exposed. Um, he, you know, everyone could look at the peripherals and go, he's getting lucky, he's getting lucky, and then it finally just happened. It just it, it happened, and Giovanni came in there, and he was filthy. Strikeouts were great. Ratios are great. He got the saves. Um, I'm glad you mentioned him because you said potentially top five. Well, I hope Paul Spore is not listening because – in that same draft, I think he took him in round three as like the third or fourth closer, and the room went crazy. Like the heckling began, and he was heckling right back. And it's funny because you said it, and Paul's a smart dude, very smart dude. And um, maybe there's something to pull. Like I don't want to. I oh, he's not listening. I don't want his ego to grow. He's at the baseball game right now, so he's definitely not listening. So um, let's just hope. But what is it you see in Giovanni Gallegos that potentially takes him into that top five round? Well, Giovanni Gallegos, like you said, people have been begging for him to get an opportunity in the closers role in St. Louis, essentially since he he became an elite reliever in 2019. And um, it's just his combination of avoiding home runs. Uh, the last two seasons, he's had a home runs per nine below 0. 0.7. Uh, obviously, that's factors in the park that he plays in. It's very home run uh suppressing park in St. Louis, <clears throat> but he's an elite strikeout pitcher, uh, garnering an over a 30% strikeout rate his last three seasons. And given that, that Cardinals, um, obviously it may, it was inflated by the fact that they had, I believe it was a 17 game winning streak mm-hmm. during that stretch, but he was one of the most productive relievers when he did have the opportunity in September. And if, I think if you combine his 30% strikeout rate an above average walk rate and above average home run rate, a team that's presumably going to win above between 85 to 90, maybe 90 ish um, games. And that type of park, I think you have the ingredients for someone who could be as good as, or even better than uh Rizel Iglesias, maybe not quite Liam Hendricks level uh, given how dominant Liam Hendricks is with the strikeouts and walks, but you know, just below that area with uh, some of the other second tier closers. I think Gallegos has those skills as in a situation that could make him that valuable in fantasy. And now first four, now you, I'm going to have to start relooking into this because I, I knew he was really good. I wasn't going to doubt that, but man, you guys are both making total sense. Like, so I'm just sitting there going, Hmm, maybe I got to reevaluate where I'm like, I didn't have him like super low, but he's probably around 10th for me, 11th. I might have to kind of bump him up a little bit more and uh, try to snag some because he's on a he will be on a great team, great ballpark to pitch in. Um, there's no reason why he shouldn't fall into like 40 chances at least, if not more. Um, let alone convert those chances. And as we saw this past year, I think in like um, NFPC leagues, it's like 70 to 80 saves got you where you needed to be. So you get a guy like Gallegos, like you said, that maybe gets you 35 to 40. Like that puts you right up in a very good starting position to to get things done. So I like that quite a bit. Let's go to Kansas City, and this was a revolving door. As you mentioned, this was one of the teams that was just always changing things here. And it was a very fun one because, you know, all of a sudden it's Greg Holland. 
then there's Josh Stallman, and then he like everyone's getting hurt, and they're doing this and that. And Jesse Hong got a couple saves, and he got hurt. Then Scott Barlow, he was in, he was out, and he finished in. It was very very weird with how they did that, but he finished with 16 saves. Strikeouts were good, ratios were good. Um, I know it's hard to say with the Royals they could do this to us all over again next year. But what would you? Where would you be looking at Scott Barlow in a draft? Because the, the stuff is great. It looks really good. Um, where would you look at him for 2022? Uh, I think Barlow. I was surprised uh, when I went to write this article about a week and a half after the season ended. Uh, I went to look at the September saves leaders, and I wasn't expecting Scott Barlow to be among them, given how the rest of the season had been a roller coaster for how the Royals use their relievers. But in September, Barlow had really stood out as uh, mostly their ninth inning uh, pitcher. Uh, Josh Dama had established himself mostly as their eighth inning pitcher and so on. So I think going into 2022, um, it seems as though Scott Barlow has at least earned some level of trust from Mike Matheny, um, who had never really committed to a closer in his Royals tenure beforehand. Well, I shouldn't say that. Trevor Rosenthal was the closer before he got traded. But otherwise, they had been um, mostly mostly committees uh, since he took over. So I think uh, in terms of drafts, I think Barlow, Scott Barlow, that is, probably falls into that 10 to 15 range, that middle range, because uh, he is a quite a good pitcher. The Royals play in a park that suppresses home runs, although Barlow does have a bit of a home run issue himself. Uh, despite the the park, but um, the Royals are probably going to be an averageish team. Maybe if Bobby Witt pops, they'll be better. But I'm not anticipating them being as good as the Cardinals. And Barlow, in terms of his skills, he's good but not great. He's not elite um, in terms of his ability to get uh, strikeouts and prevent runs. So I think he he falls into that range of third tier for me, maybe fourth tier, depending on how the off season goes because the Royals definitely could always bring in uh, more veterans that they want to try and get into closer gigs like they did Holland or Trevor Rosenthal in 2020. But yeah, you know, I, th- I do have generally a positive outlook for Scott Barlow. Yeah. They're one of those teams that's close. Like they might have Prado come up. They might have wit come up um, offensively you know, and Salvi for crying out loud. Um, Witt's still there. They're, they're close. Um, pitching's young, but it's getting better. They could spend some cash, like you said. I wouldn't be shocked if they bring a couple of veteran arms in just so they can trade them later and, and go that route, which could mess with Barlow potentially. So it is a good point, something to monitor for sure with that situation. But I guess even if like you're doing a draft and hold or a best ball, a guy like Barlow is worth speculating on because at least some t- at some point you'd imagine he's the guy, if not out the gate, which makes a lot of sense as well. But uh, the Royals will probably have some tomfoolery going on around there to um, to keep us entertained throughout the season. Speaking of a revolving door, the Seattle Mariners, it started out with Kendall Graveman looking great. Gets traded. Okay, so what? Uh, they get Diego Castillo. They looked pretty good for a while. Paul Seawald was amazing. He kind of had some hiccups. And he's almost more of a um, high leverage guy. And then of all people, and I guarantee you, if I looked at Drew, if I didn't look at Drew Steckenrider's uh, fan graphs pay before, before we started, I would have lost a bet on how many saves he had this year. I, <laughs> I, I was blown away that he had that many saves. It was pretty crazy to see 14 saves. For Drew Steckenrider, but Seawald had 11, Castillo had 16. We know Graveman had a ton, so it got spread around. They'll have Ken Giles coming back next year, Andres Munoz coming back next year. So, what are you doing in Seattle? Uh, not drafting Drew Steckenrider. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, no offense to him, he had a tremendous season. He had put up a two ERA, but 
but his strikeout rate was below league average. Um, his ground ball rate was below league average. So that combination makes me very nervous about where the home runs could potentially go next year uh, in a larger or in a further sample size. And I think the Mariners bullpen has so much depth that Steckenrider Ryder could easily fall into some sort of high leverage sixth, seventh inning role um, compared to what he was used as in September, which was something of a pseudo closer, not a full-time closer, but he was getting, he was getting a majority of the opportunities more so than Seawalder Castillo, but obviously Ken Giles coming back, Munoz getting healthy, uh, bringing back presumably Castillo and Seawald and, who knows? The Mariners might get even more relievers. They're going to be trying to compete next year. So um, and Rider isn't really on my radar, at least right now, uh, in terms of drafts. Yeah, no, that's fair enough. It's a tough one. Again, like you look at just this Mariners bullpen, I'm looking at guys just between saves and holds. Stecken Rider had 21 combined. Seawald had 27. Castillo, 26. But then even Casey Sadler had 15. Anthony... Misiewicz, I might have screwed that up, 19. Like I said, you're getting Munoz and Giles back. There's a lot going on in that bullpen. And so that'll be fun. And we know Jerry likes to trade. Deal and Jerry. So uh, that'll be that'll be interesting as well. So tough one for sure to pinpoint. But again, another good one to speculate on, those 50-round drafts. Like you could throw a few darts out there and, and you'll see, see what comes up for you. Um, let's go to Washington. And this one was fun because even going into the season, I was taking shares of Tanner Rainey. In long and deep drafts, deep drafts, and obviously that didn't pan out out the gate. Um, they had different guys back there. Eventually, Kyle Finnegan goes back there after some trades. Everyone was excited for that. That was good for a little while. That got kind of ugly. Tanner Rainey kind of took things over again to end the season. What do you see in Tanner Rainey, and can he be the guy to start twenty twenty two for us, or should we be looking somewhere else in Washington? I think Tanner Rainey, uh, the Nationals. Uh, I, I I think specifically Davey Martinez in the past has talked about Rainey as a potential closer down the road, given the quality of his stuff. Uh, he could touch 100 with the fastball, his slider, when when he's healthy and when he's executing is a tremendous pitch. But 2021 was obviously a lost season for him. Uh, he was unable to get into any type of rhythm, started the year with an injury. Uh, I believe it might have been a shoulder or bicep type of injury. Uh, he got off to a pretty poor start, uh, went on the injured list. I believe he had COVID, a COVID bout, had a, a minor league demotion. Uh, it was really a mess. And then he did come back in September. He showed the stuff that got us interested in him in the first place. Uh, he had run a string, I believe, of it might have been 12 straight batters that he struck out between AAA and the major leagues uh, over the course of four ish i think four appearances i i might be mis misremembering but um he did show the dominant stuff that he could have but also on the last day of the season he reminded us of why uh, he was in the minor leagues in the first place uh he got destroyed by the the red sox that ended up allowing the red sox to make the playoffs without having to play a playing game and uh he just didn't look like a closer in that specific game but he did pick up multiple multiple saves at the end of September with Kyle Finnegan struggling. I think for 2022, the Nationals look like a team where I think they'll bring in some sort of veteran, uh, maybe a boring option in the mold of Brandon Kinsler, if not him specifically, but someone like that who uh, might get ground balls, 
probably doesn't have a tremendous strikeout rate, but probably won't be expensive either and has experience in the closing role because their bullpen at the moment is extremely young, extremely volatile, and doesn't have the type of uh, pedigree or experience that I think uh, um, that I think the Nationals are accustomed to. So I think Rainey will have to work his way back if we want to see him in a closer role again in 2022, uh, just because of how up and down his his 2021 season was. Yeah, no, it was it was a, a very up and down season, that's for sure. But um, I think that's a good call on the the Nats because they're also rebuilding. Like I said with the Royals, a lot of these teams that are kind of rebuilding, all they're always fans of bringing in these cheap veterans that they can potentially flip. And that's what they're they're all about. And then and also they don't have to pay these younger guys in arbitration because hey, you didn't have any saves. We can we don't have to pay you. Like that's just the way it works. So um, I, I could definitely see something like that happening in Washington. Would not be surprised at all. Let's go to my backyard. The San Francisco Giants. Camilo Doval was absolutely filthy, like just nasty. It took him his fourth try, fourth time getting called up <laughs> because I remember seeing him in Single A like three or, three or four years ago just cheddar like just blowing single leg guys away when he threw strikes because he had no command of anything and we saw that early on in 2021 but once he figured it out with that slide piece and that fastball it was almost unhittable at times it was ridiculous and he took over in september took over in the postseason and looked great jake mcgee had his moments tyler rogers had his moments but in the end oval was the guy we have to speculate he's going to be the guy in 2022 do you think he's the guy in 2022? And if so, where would you look to take him in this? Like, he's obviously not a top five guy, but where, where do you see him? Because he's moving up draft boards. Yes. Um, Doval was a pitcher that I was looking into prior to the season starting uh, when I was looking for potential uh, relief prospects with electric stuff that might get an opportunity. Uh, his teammate Gregory Santos was another pitcher that I was interested in. But uh, it didn't happen for him. It happened for Doval, though. And he looked – he was tremendous to end the season. Uh, didn't give up a run in September. Um, didn't – the only run he gave up through the end of the season was, unfortunately, the one that ended the Giants season. But uh, he was really, really good down the stretch. And I think between uh, all the components that you look for in a future dominant closer – he has all of them. He has the velocity. He has the secondary pitch. He has the strikeout rate. He even mixes in a, a good amount of ground balls for how um, how much carry he gets on his fastball. So I think if the Giants are willing to um, to commit to having him close, he would definitely be someone I think in that uh, probably seven to ten, seven to twelve range in terms of where where his ability is at. I'm not sure how consistent he would be. Obviously, he's still well, working to have precise command, but I think the the sky's the limit uh, given the stuff that he does have. The question ends up being uh, what's going to happen with Jake McGee, what's going to happen with Tyler Rogers, and obviously you're a Giants fan, so I would be interesting to hear what you feel about it. Personally, I think that they'll start with McGee or some sort of com- committee between the three and then eventually, eventually transition to Doval. But the way they threw him into the fire at the end of the season in a in a pennant race, I was really impressed by what I saw. And it does make it seem like they might just turn it over to him. But I would be curious to hear what you say, have to say. You almost sound like you've heard my conversation with friends. Um, 
because it was early September, and one of my buddies keeps texting me, "Put Duvall in the ninth. But Mall, he's too young. You know, he's volatile. They, they like like he likes McGee. He likes Rodgers. They're gonna use Duvall. Like, I it's similar to what you're saying. Like they're kind of they'll they'll get him there eventually. I kept saying 2022 is his season, and then all of a sudden, like the next night, he's closing, and I'm getting text messages from my buddy and other guys like, "See, see," and then he never lost the role. I still think because of the way Kapler and the Giants build this team for platoons either offensively or in the bullpen, I still think as long as McGee's there, McGee's going to have his shots, at least early on. Doval should be the guy. We saw what he could do. It didn't matter if you're lefty. didn't matter if you're righty. didn't matter. If he was throwing strikes, pretty unhittable. I still think there's going to be a window, because even when McGee was on, Rogers got his chances. Um, Kapler likes to use his guys in the best leverage at times, too. Like, McGee would get the eighth. Not to give Rodgers a say, but because that's the biggest moment in the game. I could see Duvall getting that as well. So that's going to be tricky because it's not going to be like your customary ninth inning closer. Boom. I think Duvall's the guy, but I would I would um, have just caution when you draft him. It might not be as locked in out the gate as you want. I hope it is. I hope I'm wrong. But that's where I'm at. So we're, we're in the similar boats with what you're saying. I just have a feeling the way the Giants do things, as long as McGee is there, Kapler will play the numbers games. So that's what I'm worried about. Yeah, I think if if we end up in a scenario where Doval does end up being a bona fide closer and the Giants, I'm assuming they'll continue to be a good team. I don't know if they'll win 106 games, but I think they'll (laughs) I think they'll be in the upper upper echelon in baseball, he definitely does have top five upside. If that were to happen, I'm just, I'm just don't think that he'll be a sole number one type of closer the way that um, upper the top three or four guys really are. Hundred percent, I'm a hundred percent on board with you there. I think he'll fall right outside. Um, I don't want to compare him to Kenley Jansen, but how Jansen kind of shared it a bit, I could see something along those lines where Doval gets like. 60 to 70 percent of the saves which is outstanding but there's a good chunk that don't go to him so just brace yourself but the strikeouts will be ridiculous the ratio should be solid um i think in the end you'll be very happy with what you get it's just i don't you're not getting liam Hendricks, so like like brace yourself type thing (laughs) i I totally hope i'm wrong i hope i hope we can have a conversation next year and be like look at doval and giovanni gallegos like right next to each other that would be outstanding but we'll see because the Giants got a lot of money coming off the books. They're going to start spending it. It'll be interesting to see how things uh, break over there. All right, let's go to Pittsburgh. A former Giant, Chris Stratton, um, he finished the year as the closer. David Bednar got hurt, so Stratton kind of fell into it. And there was a part earlier in the season when Richard Rodriguez got traded that people wanted it to be Chris, like fantasy people, let me clarify, wanted it to be Chris Stratton. But Bednar took over, and he pitched really well. But then he got hurt. Stratton took it, kind of ran with it a little bit. Where do you see the dust settling on this one for Pittsburgh for 2022? I think uh, it's hard to make an argument that Chris Stratton is a better pitcher than David Bednar. Uh, Bednar is better when it comes to strikeouts, when it comes to the velocity, when it comes to run prevention. Uh, he had a better Sierra uh, across the board. Bednar looks like he is the better pitcher. Um, but uh, as I noted in my article, I think the Pirates, given – where they are in their rebuild process could prioritize um, either keeping David Bednar's arbitration price low or trying to uh, maximize the value, the trade value that Chris Stratton has. And they could do 
both of those things by just making Chris Stratton a bona fide closer and using David Bednar in more creative ways. So while I think Bednar is a much more interesting pitcher, I think Chris Stratton would be who I would try to target in drafts if he's not being overdrafted, because I do think he will lose the role at some point, whether it be trade or ineffectiveness or what have you. But I think Stratton would be who I would prefer to draft if I was um, ha- had to make that decision today. Yeah, and I think that's a good call because Stratton, uh, like, he probably will have the role. Bednar is very good. So I'm curious to see where that one plays out for sure. Um, the last name I've written down here is Tyler Wells. And this was a fun one because he got the role at one point and looked very good. Then he got hurt. So we were like, well, there goes that idea. But in Baltimore, it was a revolving door all season long. Guys got traded. Guys got hurt. It was it was in and out. Of the, the lead, the guy that led the team in saves into the season in the minor leagues, like got DFA'd eventually. So um, it, it was a fun year for the Orioles, like usual, for fantasy purposes. But do you see Tyler Wells kind of getting the first shot in 2022, or is there someone else that, that stands out to you? Uh, I don't think Wells has established himself to the point where he would get a full – uh, first shot, uh, Cole Solcer also had a productive season. Uh, <clears throat> but I think Wells showed that he definitely has the type of the type of repertoire that he could definitely be a well above average uh, MLB uh, reliever and even potential closer. Uh, his 23.7% uh, strikeout minus walk rate was what really stood out to me when looking through uh, his profile. He has really 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 good command and he throws a lot of strikes and with that uh, he does give up a lot of home runs Uh, his home run rate i believe was about 1.4 per nine Uh, he gives up like a 56 percent fly ball rate which in baltimore that might be that that will probably end up being an issue but i think if he could keep uh the strikeout to walk rate that he has maybe even improve upon it um Obviously, at the end of the season, he he was hurt with a shoulder injury. So uh, as a Rule 5 pick who didn't pitch in 2020, it's definitely uh, believable that he just ran out of gas towards the end of the season. But the way the, the Orioles used him at the end of the season also kind of encourages me for where what their plans for him are because uh, his, his surface numbers, his, he had an ERA over four, uh, they weren't tremendous. But Brandon Hyde still went to him in high leverage situations and eventually made him the guy he went to for for uh, for saves in the ninth inning in September. So I think Tyler Wells is a more of a speculative pick. I think he's someone that you can um, not not really looking to draft him in 12 teamers. But if you if you have if you're in a deeper league, obviously, or if you want to speculate um, uh, someone on the waiver wire after the draft. I think Wells is really, really interesting uh, based on his combination of stuff and command. And I think that he sh- will eventually take up the the role. The question will be how long it takes. Uh, Cole Solcer, obviously, he had a sub-3 ERA uh, in 2021. So I, I, I do like Tyler Wells. I think he's a very interesting pitcher, but I don't think he's someone that I'll be drafting um, at the outset of the season. So you're telling me that Baltimore, it's going to be another year where we have to like bid on like seven different closers throughout the season. That's what it feels like. No, I'm kidding. But um, like Tanner Scott's a guy going into last year I, I liked a lot from the left side. The the ratios weren't great. Uh, you got the holds for you and stuff. The strikeouts were there. 
but he had a very rocky season into the year on the IL also. So, yeah, Baltimore is fun. And, you know, they, what do they win? 50 games, 55 games? Like, save chances aren't a plenty over there. So um, that'll be one to keep an eye on as well. Any other speculative guys you have in mind? Like, say guys start doing best balls and drafting holds, and maybe you haven't done the research on it just yet, but were there any kind of guys that are, are worth kind of speculating on deeper in drafts right now? Um. <clears throat> I'm not sure what Ken Giles uh, is being drafted at right now, but I think given he didn't pitch in 2021 and he didn't really pitch that much in 2020, he's someone that could be a really nice type of late, late, late type of addition uh, given his pedigree, given what the Mariners signed him for. Um, I know at the beginning of the season, Julian Merriweather was everybody's favorite reliever. Uh, he didn't end up working out uh, for the season, but I think even though Jordan Romano is good, he's very good. He's someone that is probably going to be a top 10 closer uh, when it comes to draft season. I think Merriweather in like draft and holds or best ball or think uh, those types of maybe not best ball because relievers are so devalued, but like yeah. if you're in a, if you're in a draft that's very deep and speculative closers are going, I think Merriweather might not be the worst uh, pitcher to look at. Um, otherwise, yeah, it's still it's still early in the process. I'll have more names before the end of the the off season, but those are probably the two guys I think right now I'd I'd be shooting for at um, in the end game drafts. One guy I do want to ask you about this one is you don't have to have research for this one to know because I know you know you know his name, Craig Kimbrell. Things did not go well when he got traded. And mm-hmm. I was bitter at first because I had a couple teams where I had Kimbrell. I had Kimbrell a lot of places because most didn't want to draft him last year. They didn't believe. Or you got him later. I had Hendricks and Kimbrell on a lot of teams together. So that was kind of like a bittersweet <laughs> moment there. Like I, I ended up dropping Kimbrell like a month after the trade because there was mm-hmm. no use for him anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, the, the White Sox said they are going to pick up his option and then try to trade him. That's the goal. You would imagine if he gets traded, it's to a team that needs a closer. Hey, maybe the Rockies trade for him. Who knows? Um, what's your thoughts on Kimbrel if he does come back into a closing situation? Because when he closed, he was really good. Obviously, setting up isn't for him. Yeah, I think uh, these types of inconsistencies are It's just part of the aging process for a lot of these elite relievers. We've seen Chapman and Kendley go through stretches where they aren't that effective, but they do end up locking it in, whether it's because of health or mechanical issues or things like that. So I think it's worth giving Kimbrell another shot to prove that he's still very, very good. Um, I'll say I think the best match for him might be the Phillies. Uh, They have already voiced their concerns about uh, acquiring a closer this offseason and <clears throat> Kimbrel will probably be more I I think I think he'll have more pedigree than the closers who who the Phillies will have available to them and we know Dave Dombrowski has a history with Kimbrel uh, as a member of that championship team where he was with the Red Sox and I think I just think it matches up very well between what the White Sox want to do in terms of getting out of the Kimbrel situation that ended up being very bad for them and what the Phillies want to do, which is getting an established bona fide closer that they really haven't had in quite a while. Um, They've had Hector Neris, obviously, who was good but not great. Uh, They had traded for Ian Kennedy this year, but they haven't really had 
a lockdown guy in a while. So I think that would be a really good match for them. That's a great match. I honestly didn't even think about that one at first. It makes too much sense to make it work. And if that's the case, I'd probably end up buying him back in on Greg Kimball. So, um, yep, there, there we go. I get him from – he's going to go late wherever he goes. So sure. why not take a flyer on a guy that we know that what he could do? And like I always say, there's a point in the draft if you take someone so late, you can just drop him. Like you have nothing to lose. It's, it's mm-hmm. house money at some point. So I think he could be a fun one there. I now, think uh, also Blake Trinan is someone that I would keep my eye call. on good depending call. on the, the Kenley Jansen situation with him being a free agent. See, I feel like, and we'll get your thoughts on this. I feel like Kenley takes like a, a hometown discount, comes home, does kind of something like he did this year, pitches in like sixty to seventy games. Kind of, they kind of take it easy on him here and there. But he's the dude because I think he loves LA. He's getting older, like do a year or two, like kind of how Kershaw did it, and see where it goes. That's what I think. Do you think he goes back to LA, or do you think you know Kenley's out of town? Uh, if I were to like put odds on it or to bet on it, I think I would have the Dodgers be the favorite but I also think the the way Kenley's career has gone there have been a lot of stretches where it seems like the Dodgers don't trust him or where it seems like he hasn't been um, I I guess I could use the word appreciated by the Dodgers or their fans so I think that could play a role in whether he decides to take a hometown discount or not because he was very good this season in 2021 so he could get a pretty good contract out there assuming the cba gets resolved and all that nonsense but um yeah i think i would i think it's more than likely than more likely than not he's a dodger but i think the scenario where he's not a dodger is likely enough where um you might have to start looking at other guys was a good point it was crazy when he was having his little struggles there for like a month and the dodgers fans were booing him i was just like you know what this guy's done for you guys like really (laughs) come on guys but, uh, you know, fans are fans. That's what they'll do. Mm-hmm. But um, let's talk about a couple young pitchers going into 2022 that maybe weren't stretched out all the way. Maybe got a little run. It was kind of up and down. Who knows? A little bit of everything. But um, we'll start out with Tanner Houck. This is a guy that I was a huge fan of. I was not a fan of how they used him. Send him up, send him down. Hey, double hitter, let's bring you up. And then go back and forth. And mm-hmm. he was electric when he was out there. Go three innings. That kind of stinks. But they finally kind of stretched him out towards the end. And it felt like they wanted to run with him. What's your thoughts on a guy like Tanner Houck heading into 2022? Uh, I think Tanner Houck is someone who is probably best served being in a more limited starting role. Um, I don't think he has the arsenal depth to really be like one of uh, one of those bona fide aces. But I think uh, the slider, his arm, his um, his arm slot. I think those to combine, give him at least enough stuff where he could dominate for five innings. He could dominate right-handed batters uh, for, you know, five, maybe six innings. But I don't think Hauk has the type of ceiling that other prospects have. And I think um, that his arm slot, which does make it difficult for right-handed hitters to see him, I think it makes it harder for him to, to execute splitters to lefties and to command his fastball into lefties. Um, in a way that fools them. So I think Hauk might be one of those more frustrating types who flashes a lot of potential at times, but also struggles with getting lefties out or going deep into games. And the Red Sox also um, have quite a bit of money coming off the books, assuming J.D. Martinez opts out. And they could uh, go try and get multiple starting pitchers 
in that in which case you know it might bump Hauk into more of a six starter role or competing with Nick Pavetta for a rotation spot or whatever the Red Sox want to do so I think like in terms of fantasy drafts Hauk is there's a lot of baggage there but the the upside could definitely be worth the risk depending on how late he ends up going interesting uh, it makes a ton of sense because I love that like you said I love what he has they just the way they used him was troubling and what you said makes a ton of sense of why they maybe used him that way so Definitely something to monitor. You know, they'll have Chris Sale potentially for a full season. They still have Evaldi. Erod should be out of town unless they bring him back. Uh, Pavetta's there. So, yeah, and they they have money. So it'll be interesting to see how they they make that one uh, play out here. Luis Eel is absolutely electric. I love this kid. Watched his first start when he got called up. His first three starts, he didn't allow a run. Um, his biggest issue from time to time was walks. When he wasn't walking, guys, strikeouts were there every game. But when he wasn't walking, guys, things were pretty, pretty good as they say. So I'd imagine he has a spot in the rotation. Like they're going to have Severino back next year. They're, they're going to have a, a full rotation potentially, but I think he's earned the right to a spot. What's your thoughts on him going to 2022? Because I think his stuff is great. He also took a quick leap, leap to the bigs. He didn't spend a lot of time like going through the minor league system. So they could use that argument that he needs more quote unquote seasoning, which always annoys me. But uh, what's your thoughts on Luis Hill going into 2022? Yeah, he was only called up for an emergency because they mm-hmm. lost Cole, I believe. So he yep. probably wasn't even supposed to get this shot if things went the Yankees' way. But um, I think it's a little similar to Hauk in that um, he doesn't have a third pitch that he can consistently attack uh, left-handed pitchers with and attack batters the third time through the order with. And I think his command is so inconsistent that it'll be a struggle for him to consistently give you five innings. I kind of think he's like, he's like Cam- Camilo Doval. If Doval was trying to be a starting pitcher, okay. like with the, the quality of his slider, the velocity, the carry he gets on the fastball, the ability to get whiffs at the top of the strike zone. But the command is just, is very, very spotty. And I think he'll, um, I do like his long-term potential. I think with more reps, he definitely could get more consistent with his release points. But for 2022, I think the Yankees, given how much they they spend in terms of their payroll, how much how badly they want to win, I think they'll be trying at least more established players to begin the season, and that'll they'll have uh, Cole Montgomery, Tyone under contract. And then Domingo Armand, Nestor Cortez, who knows about them? But I think Heel is more likely not going to be in the rotation to start the season, personally. No, it does make sense. I totally forgot about a couple of the other pitchers they still have there. And how dare I forget Nestor Cortez? I drafted him the other night. I, that guy was the mustache alone was amazing. But uh, just what he did on the mound, I didn't like him, like Ranger Suarez. There's like a handful of guys, like we're September darlings that are just, where'd you guys come from? But um, it, it, they, they were so much fun, and it's, that's the beauty of baseball. It's the beauty of a six-month baseball season. We get to see wonderful stories like that. But uh, very interesting on Hill. That's why I wanted to talk about these younger guys that there's arguments to potentially have them or there's definitely arguments to, like, season them more. I, mean, I could see that happening. Um, maybe he's a spot starter from time to time because injuries happen. That's going to be a reality of the world. Mm-hmm. So it'll be uh, fun to see how that works. Let's stay in New York, though. Go to Tyler McGill, who burst on the scenes, just electric, striking out everybody. Then, you know, it seemed like the league got a scouting report on him. 
and they started to figure him out a little bit. And Command kind of got wanky at times. He's getting home runs a lot. And um, it, was, it was a rocky finish to the season. Some were good, some were bad. But it seemed like they were, they were, they were willing to keep him going. That was a good thing. What's your thoughts on him on 2022? Because he had 89 innings. He made 18 starts. So it feels like he should at least have a rotation spot for next year. But maybe I'm wrong. Yeah, I think McGill was – it was very surprising uh, to see in his debut how much confidence he had in his changeup. Coming up through the minor leagues, he was mostly fastball slider. And uh, he did end up coming out with a 12% swinging strike rate um, with a legitimate three-pitch mix. and given his height, he has a lot of extension in terms of when he releases the ball. So there, there are ingredients there for sure. I think McGill also probably needs to uh, improve upon his secondary usage in order to kind of reach <clears throat> the ceiling that he has. And he, he flashed a lot of potential. I'm definitely interested in him in terms of the Mets rotation situation. Um, Stroman's a free agent. Cindergaard's a free agent. Carlos Carrasco had a, uh, a lost, a lost 2021 season. And we don't know the status of Jacob deGrom and David Peterson had, uh, I believe it was toe surgery and uh, we'll have to see how healthy he is for 2022. But I think um, the Mets as a, as a team really have a lot of question marks, a lot of things they have to answer and their payroll I mean, unless um, unless they're willing to go way over the tax, they might have to rely on guys like Tyler McGill to fill big innings if they can't afford to get uh, a really established fourth starter. So I think McGill is someone that I'd definitely be really interested in for drafts. Yeah, because uh, the name of the game this past year, at least, was innings. Just give me innings most of the time. Like, mm-hmm. you didn't want the blow-ups, but he was good enough where he kind of you know, ratios, what, low four-ish ERA, something like he, he could probably end up in a high threes potentially, but probably low fours is realistic. Decent strikeout numbers, run into a few wins, like good back end of your starting rotation in fantasy, maybe a guy you, you know, have in and out of your, your lineup. So he, he definitely has viability. If he's in the rotation to start the season, I'm with you on that. All right, let's go to Tampa Bay. We already talked about how goofy their bullpen rotation is. Um, starting pitching is also a thing with them where sometimes they go deep in games, sometimes they don't. They started to let their guys go, though, like McClanahan, Rasmussen. They at least get five out of them, which was nice. Shane Baz came onto the scene. And, you know, the rumblings through the minor leagues is how he's just dominating. Came into the bigs, made three starts, looked pretty darn good. Do you believe he gets to start the season with the Rays and just runs wild? Or are we concerned about what the Rays might do to kind of limit Shane Baz? Um, I don't think he'll run wild. I know Steamer projected him for like 190 innings. Oh, yeah, I, that's wrong. <laughs> <laughs> I don't really see that happening. But I think the fact that they called him up late in the season when, I mean, they didn't necessarily have to in terms of at least for financial purposes, they didn't have to. And the fact that they had him start a playoff game, I think Baz will start the season in the rotation. But in terms of... The innings they let him get, I think they'll they'll definitely try to limit him. And I'm not the Rays always, and I I don't know if you know this, but I'm a Rays fan, and the, the Rays always find players that you don't really expect to contribute, but they end up contributing anyway, like a G Man Choi a few years back. And I think in terms of the rotation, they're gonna have to piece together a lot of different arms because. Um, as of right now, 
Uh, they're heading into 2022 with a lot of young, inexperienced pitchers set to start the season in the rotation with Rasmussen, McClanahan, Baz, uh, potentially Luis Patino, um, and others. So I think they'll they'll find depth, whether it's through AAA arms or through free agents, to try and limit the usage of Baz and their other starting pitchers. But I do think, um, obviously, he has tremendous stuff. He has a full arsenal. He has fairly good command of his stuff. I think it's just experience and health at this point that's going to hold him back from being a fantasy ace. Yeah, I'm a big fan of what he has, but it's like his price tag keeps going up even in these early drafts. It's going to be hard for me to uh, draft him, basically, knowing that there are going to be some like limitations to what he is allowed to do out there, which can be very, very frustrating at times, but he's electric. Like I'm looking forward to the day where he just gets to go, which will be awesome, but it is it is a little troublesome as well. Uh, Joe Ryan with the Minnesota Twins, you know, he, was, he came over from Tampa Bay in the Nelson Cruz deal, pitched in the Olympics, was outstanding. So between like the minor leagues, the Olympics, and the bigs, he threw like say 120-ish innings or so, maybe 130 overall, which is good. That's a good sign actually. And he looked really good when he was with the Twins this year. And the Twins, one of their biggest bugaboos every season is their starting rotation. It's just always a hole for them. Like you have Bailey Ober, who's not bad, Joe Ryan, Randy Dobnak, Griffin Jacks, Charlie Barnes is what finished the season for them. <laughs> I don't know about you, Victor, but that is not a ringing endorsement for a starting rotation. Mm-mm. Do you think that means Joe Ryan is like in the rotation as one of their top end starters and just kind of it's his season to kind of go? I think Ryan's def- I think he's going to be like one of their probably their two or three going into the season, given their lack of depth. And, you know, he's he's getting into his mid 20s. He's not someone that you need to coddle. Uh, maybe like you would for a Shane Baz. And um, he's he's definitely an interesting pitcher. He has a fastball that's really his, his bread and butter, the pitch that he throws overwhelmingly the most while having uh, the best results. But I found it interesting in his few major league starts, he did mix in a few more secondaries than I would have initially thought, uh, given his scouting report and his minor league repertoire. So I think, Brian has enough, he has enough stuff. I think he has enough aptitude for pitching. When I did watch him pitch, he was a fairly, he was pretty impressive with the way he would, (laughs) the way he would set up hitters. I think Ryan has, I think he's going to be a good above average major league starter. I think he's going to get the innings this year, most importantly. So I think he's someone that could be a pretty good fallback option in fantasy, given that, uh, the division's pretty good for pitchers. The The park isn't um, too troublesome. Uh, he'll have, hopefully, Byron Buxton playing center field for him. He's a very fly ball heavy pitcher, so Buxton's health might be important for him. But, yeah, I think Ryan's going to be an above-average pitcher. kind of reminds me of Jake Odorizzi when he came up with the Rays. He was mostly fastball, but then he mixed in more secondaries as he gained more experience, a lot of fly balls, but he was always – you know, hovering around that uh, high threes ERA around the K per nine. I think Ryan is going to be similar to that with more strikeouts. No, I like that a lot. It works for me. That's a quality third or fourth in uh, fantasy rotation in my book. Uh, the last one I was going to ask you about here is Logan Gilbert. He was one of the first big pitching prospects called up this past season through 119, almost 120 innings, which is really strong in my books. It was a, an up-and-down season, but it looked like he got pretty comfortable towards the end. Like looked like he was doing his thing. The, the book, they had a scouting report on him. They kind of adjusted to him, and he had to adjust back. 
I think it, it was a good learning season for him. We saw some good promise. What was your take on his 2021, and what would you think going into 2022 for Logan Gilbert? Yeah, I think there was there was a lot of good in Logan Gilbert's season. Uh, his fastball is a very, very effective pitch. Uh, he throws it hard. He can spot it uh, all around the strike zone. Um, he got a lot of innings. He showed that um, he's a workhorse. He has the type of uh, build for a workhorse, so that wasn't much of a surprise. But I do think his propensity for fly balls, kind of similar to Joe Ryan, might make it difficult for him to avoid home runs. And that might make him a little more volatile than you would want from uh, a pitcher who uh, he was among the top pitching prospects. So he, I think he might be a little more volatile with the home runs. And I think if he's going to approach what his ceiling is, I think he's really going to have to find some consistency with at least one of his breaking balls because his secondary pitches over the course of the season combined, all three of them had a, a negative pitch uh, a negative pitch value. Well, the curveball wasn't negative, um, excuse me, but the, the slider and the changeup had a negative pitch value. Uh, those were the pitches he got hurt on the most. And I think if he's going to become the type of pitcher that the scouts think he is, and the type of pitcher that he showed towards the end of the season, I think he'll have to find some consistency with at least one or two of his secondary pitches. But I do think there's a lot to like there with how how many innings he's got and how good his fastball is, the potential and everything like that. All right. What I will ask you then is with just Shane Baz, Joe Ryan, Logan Gilbert, how would you rank those three going into the fantasy season? Um, I think... I'll say the order I would draft them would be Gilbert, Baz, and Ryan. I yeah. think I think Gilbert combines the upside uh, assessment with the stability the best among the three, and I think Baz has the the upside um, part uh, the best among the three, and I think Ryan has the stability part best among the three. So I would order them in that way, um, just based on what type of a draft strategy I think I'll be. I'll be employing as a as drafts come by. No, right. works for me. I'm just I'm I'm still trying to figure out the whole. I think I think I got Joe Ryan one for me, but I, you have him three, and they're three young arms, so it's it's all over the board. Like I think between Ryan and Gilbert, they're like my one A one B because I could trust. I think I could trust their innings. That's mm-hmm. where I'm at on that one. But like if you just look at overall stuff, that's probably Shane Baz. It's just he's so good. It's so good. It's just like maybe one more year. And then we could have Shane Baz like do his thing. So it, it's a tricky one, but you're going to have to pay for him because someone's going to draft him. They're going to draft mm-hmm. him early and they're going to sit on him and they're going to reap the rewards. It's just going to be one of those deals. Do you want to be that person or not? Mm-hmm. All right. We have uh, listener questions for the show. We have one question tonight. Uh, Mr. Carlos Marcano. He uh, comes to us uh, asking, we already, we already covered uh, the world series question that we had. You have and the Astros won. They won seven to two. Like right as we started recording, Altuve went deep, so it's uh, seven to two, and uh, the series is tied at one, going back to Atlanta. But he asks you this question: Who should be the number one pitcher off the boards for next season in standard five by five twelve teamer wins leagues? Who's your number one? Uh, as of today, I think I will have to say Garrett Cole, and I'm not sure whether that's a popular or unpopular assessment, but. I think I think Garrett Cole still brings the most uh, dependable 
innings strikeouts ratio and wins package that there is with Jacob deGrom's uh, injury uh, hanging over him. And I think a lot of the volatility that came from Garrett Cole's season uh, came from the hamstring injury that he had at the end of the year and then adjusting from uh, the, the rules change. But once he, once he did adjust, he was very good in August into the beginning of September. Then he suffered the hamstring injury. So I think, I think Garrett Cole's who I would, probably take number one i wouldn't have much of a argument if you wanted to say a corbin burns or even if you still wanted to take the grom first i think the this year the debate for who the number one pitcher is is going to be fairly robust compared to when it was just the grom last coming into last season 100 percent agree like last year you had DeGrom, you had, you had Cole. You kind of had like an, a, a tier of their own, and there's like another tier of like five or six and another tier. Like it was kind of spaced out. Right now it's like you have a, a group uh, of a handful of guys you can kind of navigate through. And like, okay, these kind of three or four stand out, but these guys kind of could like sneak in. It's kind of a – it's an interesting dynamic right now early on and a long ways to go as we all decipher through it all. But I think I'm with you on Cole. And the biggest thing is – and we saw with a lot of the pitchers and – I think a lot of the arguments pitchers had with the rule change is it was mid-season. It wasn't that they couldn't do it with that. I was like, well, they're going to let us do it, so we're going to do it. Obviously, we can strike more guys out. Like, right or wrong, that was the way they were all going to do it. Simple. It was the changing it in the middle of the season. That was all it was. Like you said, eventually these guys figured it out, and they started to pitch fine. Certain guys, obviously, didn't affect them at all. Like, they still pitched great. But the Coles of the world and some other guys, they started to get in their groove, and you're like, okay, they're still pretty good. Like, like Giolito. All of a sudden, he started kind of figuring it out and stuff. So there, there's a handful of guys you could say that about. My biggest thing is I, I think I still have Cole one just because I think his floor is so safe on paper. I'm really having a tough time not taking Corbin Burns number one. That's my biggest one right now. So I kind of don't want to have to be forced to take number one. Like, give me the second choice thing <laughs> and see whoever falls to me. That's kind of where I'd sit on that one. Does this change for you at all? He asked in a quality starts league. Would you change anything on that? Um, in a quality starts, I do not think I would change. Yeah, it wouldn't change for me either. No. Yeah. yeah. I'm with you there. But all right, Victor, we will wrap it up with that one. I had a pleasure chatting with you for the first time. I can't wait to do it again sometime. But before we sign out, go ahead and let everybody know where they can find you on Twitter, where they can find your work, what you got coming on, the podcast, all that good stuff. Yes. So my Twitter handle is AwesomeVictorAA. Um, you can find me on there. You know, tweet at me, follow me. I'm not too too active but you know um that's my twitter <clears throat> you can see my work at spstreamer.com um mostly working with reliever stuff but as the off season gets into motion i'll probably be i'm planning on trying to get into more player analysis type of stuff um that's where you'll find my work spstreamer.com and uh, uh the podcast josh and i are trying to start uh the saint victory podcast that's spelled v-i-c-t-o-r-i-e uh i get it, it now this is marie <laughs> josh marie like uh, this is good you guys are like the more you guys say it it just yeah, i love it but sorry continue it was also the name of our shared best ball team this year <laughs> nice but yeah that's the name of the podcast you can find it on uh spotify i think uh, on apple apple um music too um it's still beginning is not a, a fully developed product, but I would definitely appreciate 
if you could give us feedback, you could listen. Um, that's the same victory podcast. That's all. That's what I have going on right now. Yeah, everybody check it out. Uh, Victor does great work at SP streamer, the podcast. I'm looking forward to checking it out as well. And uh, he, he deserves more follows. So go uh, follow him on Twitter. And I look forward to the, the analysis you have just talking with you now. I can't wait to see what you write about because you're very knowledgeable in all those aspects. And I look forward to chatting with you again sometime. So thanks for joining me this evening. Of course. Thank you for having me, Bubba. No problem, everybody. Make sure you check him out on Twitter at AwesomeVictorAA. Victor Akintola from SPStreamer.com. This was Bench with Bubba, episode 411. Catch you guys later.